Welcome to the Gov Innovator Podcast. I'm Andy Feldman. Our focus today is insights from behavioral science about why decision makers might choose to implement or scale up a program or why they might not. Our guest is Ariel Khalil from the University of Chicago. Here's a clip. I'm really inspired by the idea of having a competition of ideas. So really structuring the decision-making process so that all ideas can get on the table. And you don't just go with the first idea because that conforms to somebody's idea of what's right or not. What leads decision-makers to decide to implement or scale up a program? Research evidence may be one factor, but as we know, lots of other factors may play a role as well. Three of those factors are what are called cognitive biases, and understanding them can help public leaders make better decisions. To learn more, we're joined by Dr. Ariel Khalil. She's a developmental psychologist and a professor at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, and directs the school's Center for Human Potential and Public Policy, and co-directs the Behavioral Insights and Parenting Lab. She's also an adjunct professor at the Norwegian School of Economics in Bergen, Norway. I'm glad to have her with us from Chicago. Ariel, welcome. Thanks so much, Andy. It's really terrific to be here with you. Tell us in your own words, if you would, about what you've been exploring in terms of better understanding how research evidence is used or not used by decision makers and how behavioral science fits in? So what we're interested in in understanding is how practitioners' decisions about adopting or scaling up programs are shaped by their own subjective perceptions of the way the world is when there is an absence of research evidence or when there's a lack of use of evidence that does exist. And I can tell you, but the particular kinds of cognitive biases and the particular kind of decision-making context that is likely to give rise to a suboptimal decision um, that arises from taking these cognitive shortcuts in the decision process. And Ariel, one of the cognitive biases that you've noted that decision makers or practitioners may be prone to, just like the rest of us in life, in fact, is called confirmation bias. Tell us, if you would, what that is. So confirmation bias is really just the tendency to search for and interpret information in a way that confirms your own preconceptions. So this bias leads people to gather, interpret, and recall information in a way that conforms to their existing beliefs. So if a practitioner or a policymaker, for example, sees a pilot program, and that pilot program measures a couple of equally important outcomes, and the results show that the program benefits some of those outcomes and not others, if that decision maker is sort of prone to to confirmation bias, then a person with a prior preference for the program would interpret those equivocal results as support for the program, right? So, you know, the results are equivocal. Does that support? Are you going to go forward or say this isn't enough evidence? If you have a prior belief that surely this program must work, you're going to go forward in the face of fairly weak evidence. And, you know, in a scaled up version of that program, it's probably highly unlikely that you're going to find widespread treatment impacts under those conditions. 
That makes sense. Ariel, are there ways to combat confirmation bias? Yeah. I mean, what we're really thinking of is is how do you create decision-making environments that mitigates against the influence of these cognitive biases? So in this case, for example, if you think confirmation bias is likely to play a big role in a practitioner's decision to adopt a program or not, one strategy might be to explicitly differentiate between the new program and previous programs to avoid practitioners trying to fit the new program into their previous ways of thinking. In other words, to try to separate the practitioner's current interpretation of the evidence from their prior beliefs about what should work given what they thought about a different program. That's useful. It's like encouraging a fresh perspective on the evidence. Ariel, another of the cognitive biases that you note can play a factor is status quo bias. Right. Status quo bias simply refers to the fact that individuals tend to prefer the current state of events to a change, even if the change is in one's interest. So again, it's long been recognized that governments are slow to adopt new programs, even when evidence shows that a new program for example, generates benefits that far outweigh the costs. And there's two interesting explanations for status quo bias. The first is that people seem to be hardwired to assume that the status quo is good or at least better than an alternative. The second explanation has to do with loss aversion, which is yet another cognitive bias that refers to this phenomenon that's been widely documented, that the psychological discomfort of a loss is about twice as powerful as the psychological pleasure of an equal gain. And because these losses are viewed as painful, people prefer the known status quo over changes that might result in this feeling of loss. You can imagine in this case how status quo bias really stands in the way of a practitioner abandoning a program, say, with which they're familiar or that has long been in use in favor of taking a chance on a new program that shows a lot of promise. That's really useful. As you put it, it's the psychological cost of change that creates the status quo bias, something that affects you know decision makers, but every human being, we can all relate to that. Ariel, I wanted to ask you about one more cognitive bias, and that is the bandwagon bias. Tell us about that if you would. Right. So bandwagon bias is the tendency to do something or believe something simply because many other people do or don't believe it or are or are not doing it. And so this just has to do with what's fashionable and what's trendy and what is the thing for which everyone's hopping on the bandwagon. Peer influence, looking around and seeing what your peers are doing is helpful. Uh, it can mean that you don't spend a lot of time making a decision. You just look over your shoulder and see what, what someone in a similar position in another city or another department is doing. But that decision can also be flawed because you're processing that information in light of other people's views and behavior. And so the fact that simply that someone else is doing it doesn't make it effective. It's no guarantee that just because a lot of people have all hopped on the bandwagon for some fashionable 
curriculum or program is not really a good reason for you to adopt it, especially when evidence suggests you might want to take a pause and make a more reasoned decision. I want to conclude by asking you a bit more about what decision makers or practitioners could do to try to avoid these biases or their staff supporting those decision makers, how they could help. I assume, Ariel, that just knowing about the biases is a good first step. That's exactly right. As you say, just being aware that those exist just slowing down and saying, might it be the case that one of these things is shaping our decision here? That can go a long way. I'm really inspired by the idea of having a competition of ideas. So really structuring the decision-making process so that all ideas can get on the table. And you don't just go with the first idea because that conforms to somebody's idea of what's right or not. What's the process for the decision to be vetted or the, or the oversight process, for example? What are the consequences for choosing a program that fails? So I think putting these different things along the decision-making path is a promising approach. You know, I think we, we need a lot of research on the extent to which those propositions work, but I think they are very promising strategies to try. Ariel, I know that while the cognitive biases that you've mentioned are well-researched in the behavioral sciences field, their application to evidence-based decision-making is really just beginning, and your work is helping us take those first steps. So I really appreciate you being with us. Thank you. Thanks, Andy. I had a lot of fun, and I really appreciate your having invited me to chat. <laughs> 